American football had come to the conclusion that their first album would be their last, and that after wrapping up production on an LP1, the band would cease to exist. For 15 years, the band existed only as a relic of the past and as a thought experiment about what could have been had they continued their journey. A 2014 reissue of the album caused the polyvinyl website to crash upon release, thus opening the floodgates for the ensuing wave of American football nostalgia, discovery, and praise. The Illinois-based trio ultimately exists in isolation. They're a flagship emo band that takes more from jazz than it does punk. Their song structure is more alienating than it is inviting, and their songs are so deeply personal and intensely specific that they project a crushing sense of desperation onto the listener. Yet in the modern world, it is isolation we are used to. Perhaps in times of crisis, no matter how big or small, there is nothing more relatable than American football. It is for these reasons why LP1 is an art school album. My guest today is a man that I have recorded hours and hours and hours of audio content with. But instead of talking about the vast world of Japanese professional wrestling today, we are talking about a topic far more niche and hard to get into. We are talking about the first American football record, and we are talking about that with my good friend, Mike Spears. Mike, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Case. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. We talk all the time, but again, we never talk about emo music. We never really get into the nitty-gritty of our personal lives, but we also never get into your new obsession, which I just have (laughs) to start the top of the podcast with is ever since you have been quarantining yourself, which, Mike, you're in South Carolina, which luckily today they just issued some sort of a shelter in place, but South Carolina was really acting as the Wild West uh, lately. But to keep yourself sane, you have been stockpiling Adidas tracksuits. Is that correct? Yes, I decided that basically... I, I took COVID-19 seriously from the start, like just getting that out there. I, unlike a lot of my state, which, you know, South Carolina has its rep about things. I was like, oh, this is going to be bad. And especially since like our experience with Japanese wrestling, we know like, oh, this was hitting there first. So I was like, oh, it's coming in here. And I just had to find things to keep myself amused. And I decided that like, I usually work from home to begin with, but I decided I needed to like take it to the next level. And I decided to do that by starting to each day wear an adidas tracksuit and it's really dumb and it's surprising what you can find on ebay like what you can find on like secondhand stores and i've been slowly but surely compiling an adidas collection just just for my own amusement basically and it gives me something like to look forward to uh, each day going like okay when do i think this might get here when do i think that this might happen. So I have like two vintage ones and I just got today like the classic black and white one. I call this one my my formal Adidas tracksuit that I have on for today. It, it, it just made sense. Like, like we're in this day and age where everything is scary and everything is frightening. So I just wanted to have something that just like provide just a little bit of amusement to me other than like counting down the clock each day or staring at my email box. So one way or another, I was going to try to at least amuse myself during this. And that's why I've started to uh, collect Adidas tracksuits. And it seems that people are either encouraging me or they think I'm going insane. And I think it might be both, actually. 
Yes, Mike is correct. We were indeed early adopters of COVID-19 fear. We're not bragging, but we were ahead of that curve, and now we are attempting to flatten any curves. Uh, But I'm glad that in this time of self-reflection and discovery for a lot of people, you have begun to embrace your inner Polly Walnuts. It's a future that we all knew was coming for you, and I'm glad that you have taken this time to accept it and have become really almost an an acting boss in your world. You're really close to being uh, the Tony Soprano, but the tracksuits are keeping you at Polly Walnuts. And you know, Tony Sirico, he is a uh, inaugural Hall of Fame with uh, with Missy Misdemeanor Elliots and people who are like tracksuit, just all stars Hall of Famers. So just to be mentioned in the same company as Paul Lee Walnuts makes me pretty happy. Mike, I'm glad you're living that three stripe life. For me, I've always stayed fitted, New Era committed. That is indeed a Limp Biscuit lyric. It is likely not the last time I will be referencing Fred Durst on the show. I don't intend to. I just know that my Durst meter is always through the roof, and I will likely reference him at some point within the next hour. But Mike. We are here today to talk about the first American football record released on September 14th, 1999. Is this an album that you heard when it first came out? What were you doing in September of 1999, and when did you first hear this album? All right, so dating myself, I was 13. I was in middle school. I definitely did not hear this album. I was a weird kid, like the one kid that did not listen to music until they hit like puberty. So, Did you, were you just ignoring all audio at that point or were you like a really weird kid that was into like audio dramas and whatnot <laughs> no uh so the the first uh three albums i ever bought were the uh this 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 will make perfect sense of the kind of kid i was where the first two volumes of the best of weird al yankovic <laughs> and then the michael jackson which yeah now Mike, you are, you are canceled for enjoying Michael Jackson at one point in time. Well, I hate I, to I let was you 13. know that. <laughs> yeah, I was 13. So like, like I got like that compilation, that that compilation, and then like later I got into. I think at age 13 I was really into ACDC, which is like 13 year old music, you know, yeah, especially especially incredibly uncool 13 year olds. So yeah, wasn't unaware of American football. Never heard of Mike Kinsella. I mean, I didn't really discover them until I was in college myself. So it was just something that, like, it's wild to me. At least this album was released in 1999, and now it's 20. It'll be 21 years old this year, and it's what I think is one of the more important albums across genres. So 99, no idea who it is. I think I listened to this in the first time and. 2005 or 2006 when I was in college. I would have been seven months old at the time. Oh, Christ, man. I know. And I and I hate to do that to you. And I hate just throwing my age out there ever so carelessly. But I just have to report the facts that I was seven months old at the time. No, I did not hear this album when it came out. Uh, my parents are cool, but my parents are not that cool to where they had American football on the ready upon its release. But... Yeah, there's something about this album that has always, it's like it's been creeping up on me for years and years and years now because the album cover is this iconic house that is on, you know, High Street in Urbana, Illinois. If you're into emo music, uh, to any sort of extent, diving past the surface level, like for people my age, they look at emo music as My Chemical Romance and Fall Out Boy and Panic at the Disco. And if they go even just one layer beneath that, I feel like this album 
catches them at some point in their life. And it's an album that is, you know, my age. It has grown with me. I just turned 21. This album will be 21 years old in a few months. And yet I had never really listened to it until quite recently. And so upon the first time you heard this, what were some of your sort of initial impressions and what were you listening to at the time that maybe led you to this album? So I I think I was at like the right age to really grow up, at least with that first wave of emo, like before the My Chemical Romance era, the one that you referred to, like I was around during the peak of Jimmy World, like Weezer before Weezer really got into what they're doing now. And uh, still like some Sunny Day Real Estate and Dashboard Confessional were kind of like the big bands that I was listening to up to a certain point. uh, I was like... Like the first time I, I distinctly remember listening to this album was in, uh, I think it was Winston Salem, North Carolina, driving back from a uh, minor league hockey game with a ex of mine. And this she is was such like a Mike Spears activity, by the way. <laughs> Crossing state lines to go to a minor league hockey game is so on brand. Continue. Well, well I lived in North Carolina at the time. Gotcha. Like I went All to right. underground there, so I went to undergrad there. So like I was driving. She was at the time like iPods were a thing, and she was like, "Oh yeah, no, this is one of my more." more favorite favorite albums and of course at that, that time i was like listening to stuff that she was like okay that's fine and then like being like the cooler person she p- portrayed she put on this album in the car and it just kind of like floored me a lot of different ways about how it was very similar to other bands that kind of developed at the same time but in distinct geographical areas and then how stuff now that i listen to more so than american football necessarily like more math rock kind of things and the sensibilities of that kind of fall through so in a lot of ways this kind of like took me from like surface level like emo math like that kind of style of rock and then more deepened it and encouraged me to go look for people that were just kind of just doing different things and not necessarily things that i would see from bands coming to town like this and of course that was seven years after this album was released the band was dead at this point so i was like oh this is it this is the only thing to listen to from this band so got the mp3s loaded on my own ipod and kind of really took took me away from there so would you consider yourself to be a fan of the math rock genre you know i am i I, i'm someone that a lot of the music i end up listening to now is more instrumental like post-rock math rock like one of my favorite like two of my favorite musical artists are steve albini and then anthony and then andrew falcus of McCluskey and Future the Left. So like I listen to like a lot of things that are very much more instrumental focus and like the lyrics are kind of like secondary. So like hearing like the time signatures and like this, especially with the kind of lyrics that American football had, I wasn't necessarily listening to it for the lyrics when I really got into it. So you hit on a few things there. First of all, the idea of math rock at its core is these songs that are structured in a very untypical sort of irregular way where the time structures are all over the place and I feel like there's a lot of overlapping vocals and the songs are are just constructed in these complicated ways that I don't think messy is the right word because ultimately most math rock musicians are very talented musicians but there are just layers and layers of sound that have created this subgenre in the emo universe. You also mentioned that you're not really a person I don't want to categorize you as someone that maybe says, oh, I don't listen to the lyrics, but you mentioned that you are into more instrumental music, uh, that lyrics kind of come second to you. I think those are the signs of a serial killer. I think that's totally (laughs) insane. We'll discuss it with this album that I have a huge issue with 
just the lack of substance that is on this album because I had really not given it a full deep dive until I coerced you into doing this show with me because a few months ago Vulture released the 100 best emo songs of all time list and the opening track Never Meant which we'll hear in just a little bit was voted the number one song of all time and I remember talking to you and the guest of the show last week Aaron Bentley about it he's going like yeah I've never been I've never been that big of an American football guy and heard a few songs I certainly knew the lore of the band but their music had never connected with me and going through this album multiple times throughout the weekend that kind of remains true. I think this is an album that is important in the grand scheme of things. It paved the way for a lot of great emo bands to follow, but I don't necessarily look at it as a great album, but we can discuss that as we get into it. Before we break down the album track by track, just some background on the band American Football, frontman Mike Kinsella had previously played in Cap and Jazz and Joan of Arc. Are those two bands that register on your radar at all? Not at all, but also I think that's also when he made those bands and where he was based out of that I just never was exposed to them and I'd never really felt the urge to go back and and listen to them, I guess, which probably like outs me as like a fake American football fanboy or fake Mike Kinsella fanboy, but never really had the desire to. And the highest crime of all is being a fake Mike Kinsella fanboy. I just I would hate <laughs> to be living my life as such. But yeah, those were uh, against second wave Chicago emo bands, Cap and Jazz certainly has a lore now of like, I know people that are my age that are really, really into Cap and Jazz. I've always preferred Joan of Arc, but even then, they haven't really been my bands. Uh, it should be noted that those bands, as well as American football, were really popular on college radio. Uh, I would assume, certainly, at the University of Illinois, where this album was basically fostered into existence in the Champaign-Urbana area of the state. It makes sense. I mean, I keep tabs on college radio all over the country and young DIY spaces where people are pumping out recommendations as well as original content. And this album is one that has strangely lasted this weird now. You know, it's, it's going to be 21 this year, and it feels possibly more relevant than ever just on a general kind of scale do you know why that is and why this album has had so much staying power i think it's something that at least until 2014 there was a level of mystique around american football like people would listen to the album and be like oh no this was it this was a group of college friends that played I, I think like the apocryphal thing was they played like 20 shows with like only like 50 people at each show so they they almost like were not seen and of course like now like with Joan of Joan of Arc and Captain Jazz like there's a lot more out there of at least Kinsella but I think it's one of those things that I remember because I used to volunteer at my college radio station and when I discovered this album I would talk to people at the radio station and a lot of them looked at me like I was on the moon saying like yeah we listened to that like when we were in high school and I was just like, Oh, okay. I apparently I'm not one of the cool kids here yeah, about this, go but back I to do your think ACDC records, Mike. Well, like it was funny like this, because like when I started listening to this uh, and then a few years after that was really a, like kind of how like McCluskey and future left got me more into heavier music. And then I became much more into the stoner metal and just like the uh, burgeoning metal scene of the late, aughts early 10s so like it's just one of those things that 
in a lot of ways, this kind of like opened me up to like different kinds of music that would use like this, the type signatures that you would hear in math rock. But, you know, like you had like this album, it was a lot of instrumentals on it, a lot of like this. And it just was like you were given this album to listen to. And this was kind of like almost a part of the college radio, I, I guess, like curriculum. And I feel like it's kind of been that way that this this album remains on the curriculum, even though it's now old enough to graduate college itself. That was just a fantastic metaphor, Mike. Well done. I, <laughs> Thank I you. think that the mystique of this band is very similar to that of a band like the Silver Juice, who mm-hmm. you know, I, I they're one of my top five favorite bands of all time. I think the world of them, where you know, the Silver Juice started in 1994, really with their first album, but they didn't tour until 11 years later. And even then, you know, they were short tours. David Berman was not really speaking publicly. He would kind of arrive to the venue. Uh, right as the show began and leave as soon as the show ended. That was kind of his way of making sure that he stayed sober at the time because, hey, he was a recovering drug addict. But I completely understand that mystique that kind of falls around this band. And then American Football, they announced in 2014 that they're going to reunite. Uh, They say in a uh, message that was released by the group, quote, the time was ripe for three middle-aged dudes to play some old songs about teenage feelings and stand around tuning guitars for a long period of time. (laughs) Just uh, wonderful self-awareness there. Something that the emo genre often lacks is any sort of sense of self-awareness. American Football nailed it in that press release. And I saw almost a a mirror image of that when David Berman uh, came back last year with his Purple Mountains band and, uh, you know, the idea was to play shows. Unfortunately, that never happened, but he did release a new album before he passed away. And for whatever reason, his uh, presence back into the spotlight just made all of his music so much more accessible. And there were people, like, I had friends from high school that when I discovered the Silver Jews, I was like, guys, you have to hear this. This is like nothing I've ever heard before. But when I was in high school, their music wasn't on streaming platforms. You had to listen to it on YouTube, and they were uploaded by weird people. And, you know, you could never really find a full album. You just kind of had singles, or you were listening to it on vinyl or CD or whatever, which, you know, I was, but I understand that, you know, high schoolers in central Indiana might not all be rushing to the record stores at some point within their life. But as soon as Berman came back into the public spotlight, everything became a little bit more accessible and people started asking me questions and they started just asking greater questions about, well, who is this guy and do I need to listen to him? And I would like to think that most people that dove in fell in love. I think American football has a very same trajectory with that weird mystique and then their legacy kind of lingers a little bit, and then the public was ready for a comeback, and they made it. And ever since then, they have put out two albums since, uh, both LP2 and LP3, and now they're just you know living in this sort of post-emo revival landscape where they are revered as these gods and almost these mythological figures, but really they were just three college kids that put out an album. Mike Kinsella talked about how he was really into bands like The Cure and The Smiths, and as he put it, super sad shit, which is very up my alley, <laughs> while drummer Steve Lamos was really into jazz, and they constructed this sound that, I mean, there were certainly similarities, not only with Kinsella's bands, but just in this time of second wave emo, there's a, you know a handful of bands that sound like this, and there would certainly be a wave of bands that were aping the American football sound afterwards. But in this moment, in this time, there was one American football, and they stand the test of time, and it is because of LP1. Mike, are you ready to break down this album? 
Yeah, let's get into it. I thought it was kind of interesting you brought up David Berman because I was definitely someone that sadly when he passed away, that was when I got into both Silver Jews and Purple Mountains. So I thought like that that's a very apt uh, metaphor or similarity to bring up between these two groups. So I, I enjoyed that. I just wanted to say that I enjoyed that comparison because I very much was someone who did not get into it sadly until the reemergence. So I totally get where you're coming from with that. But let's get into the album. One is never meant this on the aforementioned Vulture 100 best emo songs of all time. It was voted number one, and it, we immediately are introduced to this American football, this math rock sound of jangly guitars, of layered vocals, of layered guitars, and this weird, in this case, a 6-4 time signature, and it just... No matter how many times I hear it, this song hits me like a ton of bricks, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. But Mike, where do you stand on it? You know, this is like the most famous song. I mean, it leads off the album. It's the one that there were memes made out, made about it like way after the point. But this is kind of like, as I like listen to this album more and more, the older I get. Initially, I might have like as someone, as I said, I didn't really pay attention to the lyrics, but it was interesting how they layered the lyrics onto this album and especially I like i feel like the central relationship here almost is with kinsella and steve lamos the drummer especially because you could definitely like hear like at least vocals and the layered guitars playing off the uh, drum time in this first track and i thought that that was one of the more powerful things about never meant and as someone that pays attention to the vocals more so than really it's you know it's a, a love-hate battle with me discussing musicians and the instrumentation that goes along with it because I understand that's important, but ultimately I feel like if the song is not saying something important, then I, I fail to connect with it on some level. Lyrically, it's a really bold choice to begin an album, just thematically, this idea of, you know, on the autumn night when we realized that we were falling out of love, where do you go from there on an album? This is typically the climax of something. This is typically what things are building to, but they start the album with just this like lingering heartbreak breakup. And it's just a tough opening track to listen to at times. Yeah. And this for, for people who haven't listened to this, I think LP one is a breakup album and it's just nine tracks of breakups basically. And especially like when you like look into the mystique of the band, like this is like, very much like the breakup of both the band and also like you could definitely see that all the sad shit as he said he was listening to like there definitely was he didn't mention this but i definitely got like the vibe of some joy division with this track at least so yeah the band had decided they were going to break up by the time this album was done recording and it's not necessarily that the recording sessions were so brutal they're like you know we can't do this anymore it was just that Kinsella was moving to Chicago and I uh, one of the other band members was as well and one of them was staying in Champaign and as young kids I mean I live in Chicago 
it would be very hard for me to work collaboratively with someone in Champaign. It's not the furthest drive. It's not the furthest distance, but it's a pain. I completely understand where they're coming from. Just going, ah, we'll do the album and then we'll be done. And who cares? Because the idea of just discussing this album 21 years after the fact must have seemed so foreign to them at the time because they were a band in the scene that had some buzz, but they weren't the darlings. They weren't the flavor of the month in the emo scene. They just simply existed and were this band that had some good songs. And yet we're here 21 years after the fact. I completely agree with your point that it is, I mean, it's just an unrelenting breakup album. I don't know how you could picture this as anything else because it's, nine songs in a narrative structure and it's just one after another after another of these heartbreaking gut punches and that continues with track two the summer ends thinking about summer ends we hear the wonderful trumpet for the first time just uh, such a delightful sound on this album because it's really it's vocals it's guitars it's a drum and then we hear the bass on two tracks and this trumpet is really the only sort of lively uh more i guess happy is the word i want to use it's happy instrumentation on an album that is just clouded your the joy division comparison's really right on because you know joy division everything is so gloomy and they're very literal with just these depressive feelings that they've got going on american football disguises it with these jangly guitars but thematically they're not all that different yeah and I, I find it interesting that you thought that the trumpet was kind of joyous. I kind of listen to it. And I'm kind of modeling because I feel like it's like almost, especially on summer ends, like especially after never meant you're kind of just like leading into this. And the more and more you get into the album, the more the trumpet just kind of in a way. And it's played by Lamos on the album, which is something that I find so interesting is how this guy basically was like, Oh, I didn't listen to rock. I, I played in a polka band. My favorite music is jazz. And, and you could definitely see like having a drummer like that, that's multi-instrumentalist is so interesting in this. And I think like, this is a, a track that definitely like sticks out with me. And maybe, maybe I think the lyrics on this song might be, I think some of the strongest, cause it's not necessarily meandering. It's kind of to the point. And then they have what I think is some of the strong, like math rock instincts of it. That I thought were so strong. Yeah, you mentioned that Steve Lamos was not really coming from a music or a, a rock background at that point. And Ian Cohen, who mentions in the Pitchfork review of the reissue of this album, uh, he says American football's greatest innovation was successfully removing any trace of punk rock while still functioning within the genre. This was a bold remover since the genre's hardcore roots were about the only thing that gave its practitioners even the slightest bit of credibility. American football were the only ones headed in new directions, but whatever you think punk rock means, they got rid of it 
on American football. There's almost no confrontation, almost no distortion, no power chords, and none of the verse chorus structure that was maintained even when emo became virtually synonymous with alt-rock. First of all, goddamn, Ian Cohen is such a brilliant writer. Uh, It pains me that uh, he is just wasting away reviewing just whatever new emo album comes up on Pitchfork because I wish he had a much larger platform. But there's something about the trumpet that in, in... I can speak on this to some personal extent of just, you know, going through uh, a breakup that I went through last summer of uh, just taking things day by day and you hit these weird peaks and valleys. And I kind of look at that trumpet as one of the peaks of, you know, you're still kind of trying to figure out what is what and you're trying to get your bearings because, you know, your life as drastic as it sounds, your life was altered in somewhat of a drastic way if you're getting out of a long-term uh, relationship. And I look at those trumpets as almost this call to peace and this call to calmness that is absent from most of the album, whether it be thematically or uh, instrumentally. It's a harsh album. There's a lot of harsh tones on it, a lot of harsh themes on it. But that trumpet represents like this moment of peace that I quite honestly really enjoy. Yeah, and, and I think that's the thing that re- listening to this a lot more intensively over the last few days, my original draw was like the time centers and all this, but I kind of came away of going like, man, Steve Lamos, I know that he is an adult with like an adult life now, but I'm like, what kind of like just interesting music could this guy put out with? Because he was, I, I maybe at least when like I imagine when I listen to this album, at least recently, I think about them as like these two, as these three early 20 musicians knowing that this is like their last like big performances together. And this guy who's playing drums and then picking up the trumpet partway through to play. And it's just like such a wild, just mental image for me. And it's something that I think that the more I listen to the more deeper appreciation of like the levels, I think the trumpet brings. I'm certainly glad it's there. If the trumpet was not there, I would fear this album, which is nine songs two of which are instrumentals, I would fear if the trumpet wasn't there, we would be looking at what I would feel like are basically glorified demos. The trumpet, for whatever reason, and it's one instrument and it appears in only a few songs, but the trumpet gives it life and it gives it just this will to live almost that this album desperately needs. move along to track three honestly it is six minutes the line honestly i cannot remember all my teenage feelings and the meanings rings true to me even as a 21 year old mike when you look back on your teenage self man how (laughs) how are you feeling about that it kind of really like puts me in the place of like the first time or the first few times i was listening to this i think that god now i'm trying to think of of me at both age 20 or 
And then at age 13, at age 13, I've had no con uh, that this lyricism would have been completely lost on me. But at least when I was in college, like going through like relationships myself, like soon breaking up with the person who showed me this album, like I, I definitely remember listening to this album. And this was the track that I think I constantly put on repeat when I was listening to it, just because like it, it the, the lyrics maybe for like all the other songs that kind of jumbled together, but this, the, this lyrics, that at least from Kinsella and this one, I feel like attack people like like an ice pick into like an ice carving in a lot of ways. Like talking about like all the who's are here, but the why's, the why's are unclear. Like, especially considering when this album was made and like the, the people who they were playing for, like that must've been like the heavy track, like watching this band live in Urbana, I would think. Yeah. It's a really daring track. And again, I, I hate to almost go back to it, but I, I mentioned, you know, the opener is like this song that is so intense and I just can't believe they open with it. But this is track three. I mean, it's really just this build of doom and gloom. And part of what was hard for me with this album was I look at what I almost feel like are, are the more traditional sounds of emo music. And it's what Ian Cohen mentioned that, you know, American football removed them. And I kept on waiting for that guitar to kick into some distortion. And I kept on waiting for Mike Kinsella to raise his voice and to take these feelings that were, he, he sounds so defeated in the album. He, there's really no light at the end of the tunnel for him. And whether it's revenge that I was looking for or whether it was just a tonal shift, I kept on waiting for that to happen. And it never really does. There's just one emotion that lingers over this entire album. And this is a six-minute song. And the last four minutes of it are pure instrumentation. They're building to the end of the song. And there's so much tension and I think it reflects their own life and the uncomfort that they were feeling, but it makes me uncomfortable in the process because it's like I'm waiting for them to rip the Band-Aid off. I'm waiting for them to do something new, not necessarily because I'm sick of what they're doing, but it's just it's making me anxious almost. And I and I, they never rip that Band-Aid off. They just they slowly are peeling it off as the entire record goes along. And as a listener, it is very intense at times. Yeah, and I think that when you talk about American football and the time it existed and the bands that would come after it, like this was very much was before like the pop punk really kind of took over and that and at least from my memory of it, it seemed like they went straight from like Blink One A Two and some forty one, like those style of pop punk bands into the more emo acts from there. And at, maybe as a forebear they were more focused on the intensity of it because I do feel like that there's like such a distinct like delineation between eras and the emo music at least. And I feel like that very much like when I've gone back and like listened to like Sunny Day Real Estate and the bands of like the the late 90s into the early 2000s and even like earlier Jimmy World, I do feel like that this this was kind of like the style of that was we're just going to be unrelenting. It's going to be very, very kind of model and it's going to be like as you say it's a band-aid that like never peels off it just keeps on going and there's not really the catharsis at the end maybe the catharsis at the end is that you don't have the lyrics of the next song so it's not building more the dread in a way and i feel like that this song kind of is like the big like the the, the tip of the nail of the uh, lyrics at least from Kinsella's standpoint i think the lack of lyricism in this album actually played 
to their favor when it came to critics because if you look at the original Pitchfork review for this album, which is no longer on the website, but it's available through Web Archive, uh, the writer Taylor M. Clark says, my biggest complaint about American football is that they don't suck terribly. As it stands, they have created some very pretty tunes which are perfect for, well, emo-ish things, like cuddling, hanging out around a playground at sunset, and sighing deeply. So I guess I'll just have to pull up my Argyle socks and deal with it, because you're right, this is, we're seeing the first wave of emo backlash at this point, because, you know, emo is built off of the back of the DC hardcore punk scene, and I look at the first emo bands as, like, Rites of Spring, or for me, Embrace is the big one, which embraces what Ian MacKay did after Minor Threat, but before Fugazi, and Embrace is just this unrelenting, I mean, it would be labeled, you know, by people my age as a punk album, not really an emo album, just because of the way that the sounds have shifted over, you know, two or three decades at this point, but emo was something that comes from punk music and a lot of heavy literal lyricism and then you have this emo i i'll say it's an emo twang of these voices that come across maybe as whiny and just these first world problems that are so often lamented throughout the entire genre and one of the things that you know american football was just so different when it when it came to their sound was these lack of lyrics and more so than almost any other band i've heard they do a really good job of just expressing a sort of existential dread that lingers over, I think especially teenagers and young adults. Like, I work with a lot of creatives who are constantly trying to find ways to represent their mental health struggles, their depressions and their anxieties through art, whether it be audio, whether it be music, whether it be some sort of visual performance. And it's a tough thing to do because it's ultimately kind of this unseen almost unspoken about illness and American football by not maybe addressing it head on addresses it far better than most bands. Yeah. And I, I think you really kind of hit it when you said dread, this is an album of dread. And I think it's very, as we like talked about very easy to see what they were dreading when they put this together. They knew that there was a air of finality, at least in the short term with them. And then when you, like, you listen to this, especially as when you're younger versus like me listening to it now, where I'm more like, oh, this is interesting. Oh, this is a bummer. But it, it's definitely something that I feel like for this time, it was, as you said, like illustrating some levels of mental health or anxieties. I feel like like this is I feel like this is a very anxious album. I feel like honestly might be one of the more anxious tracks on there. For sure, Mike, for sure to that, and for sure is also the <laughs> name of track four. Again, with a 90-second instrumental, we've got some trumpet in there, and then we go into the lines, June seems too late, delayed, maybe for the better, and I I know I'm drawing, or I'm jumping rather, to too big of a conclusion, but if you look at this album cover, which I don't know about you, but I am so attracted to this album cover, and am so intrigued by the mystique of it all. And then we are living in the times we are living in where 
I don't entirely know if it's safe to go outside, which sounds insane, but that's the world we're living in. For sure hit me really hard because, you know, in 1999, they're talking about some sort of emotional decay and emotional delay, and maybe they're not ready for the calendar to flip over to June. Now we are listening to this in a literal sense where I am not sure I am ready for June because I don't know what it's going to bring. Right, and when you bring up the album cover, like, it's now apocryphal how famous this uh, house was in Urbana, uh, Champaign, Illinois, but it's just, you, you, like, look at this, especially for a track, uh, like, for sure, talking about, like, to say certain whether this uncertainty is for sure, and you see just, like, the lights and the uh, the house, and it, with, like, a, I don't even know how to describe the sky, because it's definitely a nighttime sky, it's the... The, there's been stuff from like the photographer where it's like, oh yeah, no, he just went out there and took the photo, and I lived in this house at this time, and I thought this was a cool photo. But you see very distinctly in the photo the window that has a huge bright light in there, and I very much can like see that at least for this month, and maybe it is for future weeks and months that it, that that's what life is for a lot of people now, and I can only imagine for teenagers and young adults at this time, like the thing about like like that's like the only light you have, like this is kind of what your world has become for like the last few weeks or months and i feel like that that's kind of easy to see a similarity to yeah i you know i i say to someone that's 21 that's in college this album entered my life at what is supposed to be the right time for this album and even though i don't love it uh i really like it i really respect the artistry of it all and there's something about this album, and, and I, as dumb as it sounds, I think it is partially because of the cover of this record, where I just want to listen to this album over and over again right now. It is strangely, for as depressing it is, as it is, and for as much as we've talked about how big of a downer it is, there is something that is strangely comforting about it. And I think it's just my metaphorical mind. I love jumping to conclusions. I love making more to stuff than there actually is. For me, it has been a great sense of comfort. And then from there, we move on to track five, an instrumental you know I should be leaving soon. Mike, you mentioned you're all about the instrumentation. You are an instrument pervert. I have here W. Do you have any <laughs> strong takes on this instrumental? Well, I more have, like, at least for this first one, how they've kind of built this album for the first four tracks, and then you have your first instrumental. And it's something like going through the lyrics and going through, like, the lengths of the of the tracks. It, it kind of builds up. Summer's End is is one of the longer tracks and then you have honestly and for sure then you just have not no words for the next track it's instrumental i think that that i find that very interesting that and it's kind of probably profound in a very much like a 20 year old sense of like if you're like a musician it's like oh this is going to be like our final album this is going to be our only album we're going to do we're going to do song 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 instrumental and then we'll, we'll pick up from there then and i think that that's like interesting and, and it that this is like the the part 
of the second half of the album where I feel like the music, the instrumentation, especially the time signatures, get so much more complicated. And I feel like this is a good way of like ending like the first half of the album, especially before getting into But the Regrets Are Killing Me, which has constant time signature change. And I guess being an instrumentalist pervert, like that's something that like this whenever I listen to this one this one track, I'm like, okay, I know what's track is coming next and this is that's kind of what sticks out of me is like this is a little bit of a vocal reprieve and kind of get your mindset for what's going to happen for the remainder of the album are killing me is next we hit this three song uh sort of period here where it's you know i should be leaving soon but the regrets are killing me i'll see you when we're both not so emotional which feels very intentional just in the way that those songs are titled and the fact that they're uh coming one after another but the regrets are killing me very interesting song to me the vocals are so far down in the mix at the beginning and it's less that they're competing with the drums and the guitars and more sounds like they're fighting to stay alive to get any sort of coverage on this record because they are just buried in this mix as the song continues along they're brought up and we get to hear uh the lyricism of you know these four years and how we say goodbye to these four years a long goodbye with mixed emotion just fragments of another life mike you have a little bit more distance on this sort of stuff than i do i But I'm going through this thing now of, you know, I've got another year of college left and it's starting to hit me of, you know, there are just people I see and things I do that once I am handed my diploma, whether it be in person, hopefully, or through Zoom University, (laughs) there's a part of my life that is ceasing to exist here. And there's something very attractive about this song to me because it is hitting on those exact things. As someone a little bit older, does it resonate with you in that light at all? You see... You brought up the uh, second stanza there. The thing that really got me with this is the not dead yet, but the regrets are killing me, but the regrets are killing me, but the regrets are killing me. I think like it's so interesting how this is portrayed and then like thinking about like the distance from this because this is what I think is one of the more complicated uh, instrumental songs on the album. It goes from 344 to 154, then to 94, then back to... Three, four, four. So it's a very complicated song to listen to, and it just—it's very much set up like this. So when, like, I think about the uh, lyrics of it, in a lot of ways, it's kind of like when I was in 2009 when I graduated college. I knew I was going to go to grad school like right afterwards, and I was already like making plans for that. So when I hear like when I look at like a long goodbye with mixed emotions, just fragments of another life, like that does really resonate for me, because especially looking back at that time, it's like I was getting ready to move halfway across the country, start going to grad school. And like with a lot of the friends and a lot of the people be around that you just don't see. And then like you slowly over time kind of drift away as like the long goodbye of mixed emotions. And that's kind of the thing that resonates for me, at least a little bit, at least lyric wise in this track. 
Yeah, the the line in particular, just fragments of another life, for whatever reason, stuck out to me because I, I've just been thinking a lot lately, and I kind of addressed this with Aaron Bentley last week, of it just the way, uh, and I chalk it up to maturity, I hope other people do, but just the way that uh, my emotional spectrum has shifted and just I don't, I don't worry about the things I used to. I don't get angry about stuff the way that I used to. Now, I'm still a full believer in experiencing the emotional spectrum at its fullest. I think it's good every once in a while to be angry. For me, I watch cops versus skateboarders videos where I see (laughs) police harassing young skateboards, and that gets me more fired up than anything. There's a lot of atrocities in this world, but nothing makes me angrier than police kicking skateboarders off of what they consider to be private property. That's an argument for another day, but the fact is I just look at the way that my emotions have begun to shift and things that mattered you know, three, four years ago are just so little in the grand scheme of things. I've begun journaling every day in my current life and it's weird for me you know writing something down on a Friday and then I look back at the Monday and and that Monday I was so concerned about something that has gone on to be completely meaningless and I think a lot of people would look at that and take on more nihilistic tendencies and they would worry that maybe nothing means as much but to me that just means that we're living a full and prosperous life and that I would rather feel all of these things than feel nothing at all but I also now am gaining a weird perspective just with my age of I now have the ability to look back on hindsight with bigger life decisions and for me it's been a comforting thing because I'm happy with the life that I've lived I don't know if that's bragging or not you can tell me (laughs) if it is but I've been doing okay but, you know, I feel like that that's a uh, pretty honest and uh, right mind to kind of have about that kind of stuff in a way. Like, I definitely know that when I was 21, I like this. And then, like, 22, I I, I was one of the people who decided to do the uh, victory lap slash super speed senior year. I took a semester off and I decided just to string out my senior year because I was, didn't want to do a lot of classes. I wanted to take it easy. But uh, it, it, you want to listen to stoner metal and just chill out. Hey, my, my last semester of college, I went to something called Scion Rock Fest. It doesn't exist anymore. It was put on by Toyota. We drove down I, I eighty five, and let me list list off the bands. Like the, it's still to this day the coolest concert I went to. But it's also a certain kind of concert that you have to be a certain kind of person to go to because the headlining ma- acts were Mastodon, uh, High on Fire, and Neurosis. Ugh. God, I and, <laughs> and 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 I almost died in the car wreck on the in a car wreck on the way back. So I mean, it just was kind of fitting for like that. But like, I totally understand like putting things in perspective, especially when you get to like your final year of college. And I feel like that this is very much a track that does do this because he talks about these four years and how we say goodbye to it. And I think like it's entirely something that I think is very relatable that when you get to like that point, you are starting to get a little bit more sentimental. You are starting to track things. If it's either journaling or I, God, this, this makes me feel actually really old. I think the first time I ever signed up for Twitter was in 2008 and 2009. An early adopter. Good for you. I mean, it's really I, I paid off. <laughs> so yeah, much yeah, good I mean, going on there. <laughs> I, I was a, one of my many great life decisions was signing up for Twitter at that time. But like, yeah, I, I feel like that's like a natural kind of thing. I think it's like the perspective you get and like the desire to have more perspective, I think is very 
relatable and i think that i know i've said relatable a lot but it's very much something that i think is the natural progress when you come or natural process when you come to an end of the stage of your life and i think very much like this album is the end of a, their stage of their life and then like with you saying like okay i'm getting my last year of college like this is what i'm looking to and like the uncertainty of that i think it's very uh I, I think it's one of the more like prescient thoughts about like this album and about like this time because this is an album that i think really is about at least in the listener like you can't help but think about this like looking at like the end of college or the end of a certain era of your life not so emotional is the next song on the album it is track seven but before we discuss this i have to backtrack for just a second because mike spears mentioned that neurosis was one of the headlining bands at the festival he went to i am open to discussing all genres of music on this show there's just uh, genres hip-hop country uh, there's so many things that we haven't even touched the surface of when it comes to this podcast I guarantee you I will never be discussing Neurosis. They are the first band, band, <laughs> B-A-N-N-E-D, B-A-N-D. They are not allowed on the show. Neurosis, one of the worst bands of all time, and I refuse to subject myself to listening to them. That being said, I'll see you when we're both not so emotional. For me, it is the best song on the album. I loved this. Mike, where do you stand on it? It's one of the tracks that... At the time, I said, honestly, it's my favorite track on the song or on the album. When re-listening to it, this is one of the ones that at least now that I'm listening for lyrics because I've gotten older and less weird, I'd like to think. I, I think this is a stronger track because I think this might be Kinsella as one of his like strongest uh, lyrical parts of the album. I think it's very strong lyrically. For me, it was actually, it's funny you say that because instrumentally, this was the song where I was like, yeah, like more of this, like the guitars build in a way that I just found to be very pleasing. I can't really say it's the chorus, it's more of the second stanza where the guitars really kick in and then you hear this big pounding drum that was absent for the first six songs of the album. And on top of that, you know, the lyrics, you know, if you're so prone to accents and misunderstandings, you may accidentally misinterpret honesty for selfishness. We're two human beings individually with inherent interest in each other and how we relate. Uh, that's uh, more philosophy than anything. It, and it is kind of a philosophy that, it, again, I hate going back to it, but like the finality of this album, the finality of the, like the, the, the time of the musicians, the finality, I think, of life that I think is something that you kind of learn and you and when you reach like a certain age and I do think this is something that you you pick up on your early 20s like you start understanding like relationships and like the inherent relationships and how everyone kind of relates to each other and I think that that's like maybe why I think that this album this song has some of the stronger lyrics is Kinsella kind of hit on a point in a very 22 23 year old way that I think is a pretty a, a pretty interesting point 
Yeah, I can speak to it on some sort of a personal level because I do feel like this song is some sort of transition into the new you, into this new human. Because I think at this point you're looking at putting these stories that were sung about in the first six songs. I think at that point, at this point, they're kind of looking to put those in the past. I can speak to it just as my own person. A young person that was you know the same age that these guys were when they when they wrote this album, forgiveness is such a powerful tool, and I even in the past month have really taken sort of that action and tried to implement it into my life to the best of my ability, and it turns out that it makes my life better when I'm able to let go of certain grudges, when I'm able to reframe situations in my head to where it is less. I'm right, they're wrong, and it is more, uh, we're all humans, and this is just how things happen to end up. Not necessarily everything happens for a reason, I think that's uh, just a dumb way of living life, but there are just situations that unfold the way they do, and I, I it's better to have a positive reaction to them than a negative reaction. So everything yeah. about this song, I was just uh, a huge fan of. Yeah, and I, I think it's something that, like, the first however many tracks on this album are so much like dealing with like, Oh, the end of the relationship and it's in a relationship end of this period of time. But this one is just kind of, I think one of the only, or one of the first like empathetic songs on the, on the record, because it's saying like, you will understand my motivation for being alone, but you also can see it being transposed on in a way of saying like, I won't understand your motivations as well. And I think that that's, that's a, a way that I find this track so interesting because it's, very much like one side of a breakup, I feel like, or very much like one side of a hard conversation. And in the same way, like I feel like that there's almost like a call and response with this track that they find so interesting about like, okay, we understand like who we were and now we understand who we are apart. And I think that's something that I think is pretty thought provoking about this track. I will just say it hit home on a pretty personal level. Unlike track eight, stay home. minutes long and Mike I've talked about on the show how I I don't like songs over five minutes long for the most part I think music is better when it's compact when it's concise I tend to gravitate towards I would rather have say an album like the first one that comes to mind just because I know the numbers is like Joyce Manor who is a a great pop punk band Mm -hmm. Uh, their first album is 10 songs 21 minutes I'm very okay with that duration and the length of all of those songs. This is nine songs, 40 minutes for the album. This is by far the longest, eight minutes. I don't even have an issue with the length of this song. 
I just, Stay Home did not grab me in any way, shape, or form. Most of the lyrics um, are just a repeating, but that's life. It's so social, the kind of cascades as the song goes along. I think it's pretty, but I don't even necessarily think it's that good. I think it's something that this track, I definitely, like, the the band that came after this, that I know that they get lumped in together, but I do see the most similarity between that band and American football is Explosions in the Sky. Okay. And I feel like this is very, I think this is very much like an Explosions in the Sky-like song. Like, if you take out the lyrics and just listen to instrumental, it is kind of like, just like that kind of little bit meandering, and then it gets booming, and then meandering, and then booming, and then you look at the lyrics, the lyrics are kind of the epitome of meandering i'm, I'm going to count up how many times the line but that's life it's so social is repeated i think it is uh 14 times yeah that's a lot it it's yeah. certainly the presence of that line is felt as we go along it's like okay but, yeah it's it you're right it is life it's so social yeah, you got it man i apologize 15 uh texas educational system can't count <laughs> Yeah, that's 15. Uh, I, I'm looking at the Genius page, and I'm like going one, two, three, four, and I'm trying to count in my head at the same time, but I also feel like I need to get like my fingers and my hands out and start hand counting this. But yeah, no, this is a song that like, that's life, it's so social, and it's one of those things that I feel like at a certain point, like the maybe the fourth time that they say it, you're kind of, or that Kinsella sings it, you're kind of like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if there's a track that I think is a weak part of the album, it's probably this one, even though I enjoy enjoy the similarities it has like future math and just post-rock bands. I'm so glad you said that because I was really concerned that this song that you were going to think it was some unheralded classic. And I, and I was going to look bad because most episodes of the show, I've talked about how there's been one super long song. I'm like, it doesn't, it doesn't need to be that long. This is ridiculous. I, I'm not even offended by the length. I'm just bored by this song. And, and it's also one of the things that this is like, that they've made jokes about this album after the point. It's like, oh yeah, people seeing it would see us like say so would wait like eight minutes for us to retune <laughs> our guitars after each song. Like the most common tuning they had was F A C G C E, and this is the last track that does it. Like they had that that certain tuning three times. So so they drop out of standard. They only go to standard twice in this entire album, which kind of tells you like how college just like. I mean, like as much as I love this album, there is an inherent ridiculousness to this album. It's and so I, ambitious and just in the truest sense. It's like, wow, they really went for it. Yeah, and they went for it in a way that I remember going for it, at least in like film projects, like doing like student film. And you always go for like a project, like the idea of like, oh, your thesis is going to be your thesis film is going to be something that like you get you get it in your mind that it's going to be like oh I'm going to be like George Lucas have my thesis film completely lead into another career and you get so ambitious you get so just kind of involved within it until you get to a certain point where like oh I should have just drop back down to standard guitar tuning and just play the damn song I weirdly went through almost the opposite phase of that my senior year of high school where I wrote I wrote a student film and I had at that point done a few student films and had worked on a weird low budget movie called The Storyteller, which is now on Amazon Prime. I was a PA on that. I don't entirely know how that process came about, but it was a fun summer working on that. But anyways, I I had just seen the headaches of lighting and just the way cameras had to be implemented onto sets. And I just had this, like, I was so sick 
of all of the complications that my senior year of high school, and I was listening to a lot of like bare bones folk punk at the time of EPs that were recorded entirely in one take, and it would just be an acoustic guitar and maybe an upright bass and maybe a banjo, just bare bones instrumentation. I was like, I'm just, I'm going to make a film that's just like nothing. Like I just, I just (laughs) wanted, it was, I guess a mockumentary, but because it was a mockumentary, like we could be really loose about the way it was lit. And uh, I just, I wanted just nothing in it. Um, And then I, after that, I was like, well, I've got that on my system. Now I can go back to making normal productions like a regular (laughs) human, you know, things that look good and, and have a good story to it. But yeah, there's a, a certain and I love it. I and I hope that I don't grow out of it as time goes on. But there is just a raw ambition to stuff like this, and I and I think it lends itself to emo music, which gears towards younger people. Anyways, there's something great. And, and Joyce Manor, who I just mentioned, is another one of those bands where they had such a distinct sound where they came out, and it was so cool to hear of just like oh. These guys are being themselves. I mean, this is their sound the way they want it. I always say a band like La Dispute is the most fearlessly authentic band there is. They are, are, are fearless in their pursuit for authenticity because they are creating a sound that even now as they've aged, they're, they're starting to get away from it, but they're still just this, you know, that is their sound. And for American football, this is their sound. And we end with track nine, the one with the Wurlitzer. I like the the fact that well, we've talked a lot about like Kinsella and Steve Lamos, but this is kind of the track where Steve Holmes, who mainly just plays guitars on this album, gets his chance to kind of just have a good time on the Wurlitzer. It's just something that you like listen to and you're like, okay, this is different. You know, it's not. It's always the track that well, at least when I was like listening to it er- lately, I would pull it up on Spotify and it would go straight into this track that kind of like I forget which artists is i'm gonna pull this up my phone because this is something that i've found really interesting because i've listened to this album probably eight times over the last four days which is probably far too much for uh, I'm in preparation the yeah no it's it was a lot of american football this weekend yeah it, it would it would always would go straight from the one of the Wurlitzer into ttng on spotify for me for some reason oh. and and here was the thing about this track and maybe this is a track that like i don't think very high of. I would never tell the exact moment of that that this album would end. It would go straight into the TTNG album. <laughs> I would not be able to do this. So like 45 seconds later, I would look over to like my phone or I would look over to click over on my computer. But like, oh, this track's over now. Okay, time to, to, to time to hit either start the beginning of the album again or close out of Spotify. So that was kind of like my initial response to that. This track was that. Though. I think it's kind of cool that. And in very much in the college way that it's like, all right, we, we've been featuring like some of these guys. Now it's, it's it's time for us to feature Holmes. And also it's interesting because like Holmes and Kinsella, at least through like all the retrospective talked about like how how big of a friendship they had and how they were roommates all four years in college. And it's very much like, oh, this is my roommate gets to do his thing track. Yeah, in a in a weird kind of poetic way is beautiful, but it is an instrumental, which means to me it is 
just objectively weird. It's just, it's in the bin. Um, <laughs> so that brings us to the end of the album. It's American Football's LP one, nine songs, forty minutes. Uh, to once again quote Ian Cohen in the reissue Pitchfork review, he says, American Football was released in September of 1999, which lends the album a real-time immediacy. The lyrics begin in June and end in August, surely a powerful period of time for teenagers and college-bound kids. Unless you're a teacher or an NFL player, though, typically the typical adult's day-to-day doesn't change all that much during the summer. It's hotter, there are dumber movies in the theater, and that's about it. And yet, those same see-through teenage feelings can manifest during the changes of the seasons, regardless of age. I think that's a nice way of sort of summarizing this album, which initially, upon release, received a 7.5 from Pitchfork. The reissue, released in 2014, received an 8.6. Paste Magazine gave this a 9 out of 10, and Consequences of Sound gave it an A. Mike Spears, your rating out of 10 on American Football's LP1. I mean, as much as I love this album, I can't give this album a 10. Like, that's just inherent. But seeing that we've talked about tracks that we're like, okay, this is an especially like looking at Stay Home. I give this like a solid 9, I think. I think it's a 9 out of 10. You know, I'd give this album an A. I think Consequence of Sound had it right. I am falling somewhere within the 7 out of 10 range. And and that's not an insult to the album because ultimately I think this record is more important than it is good. Like I'm glad just the life I live, most people have better things to do, but I'm glad that I sat down and finally listened to this album and absorbed all the sounds and began to dive into the narrative structure of it because now I have that. And as someone that, you know, for whatever reason, really cares about just the history and the lineage of emo music and where, you know, the bands of my generation, the modern baseballs and the Joyce Manners and such and such, where their sound came from. I'm glad that I finally digested all of American football because now I feel like it just makes me a more in tune listener because this is such a historic record. It's so important to so many musicians across multiple genres. But I, I, I really just struggle with the way it's laid out because there are there's no, I guess, you know, downtrodden parts of the record in terms of quality. I mean, maybe Stay Home, which I think is the weakest song on the album, but, you know, songs like I'll See You When We're Both Not So Emotional, songs like Honestly, songs like Never Meant, they're really strong, but I think there's like an all-time great six-song EP in here, and when you expand it to a full-length nine songs... Uh, instrumentals or not is, is not the issue. It's just, I, I this never sniffed perfection for me, but it's important, and that's good. Yeah, and I actually have a, a question for you on, on this lines. Before you, you, you invited me on the show, and when we were talking months ago about like the important emo albums of all time, you were really down on this album. How has your kind of opinion of it changed over me forcing you to listen to this album pretty much for four days. Well, I, I I could have had you on to talk about Saves the Day as you were, but it would have been us just losing our minds over how great that record is, all 14 songs. It would have been, oh, this is amazing. Oh, this is great. But I wanted to challenge myself with American football to really sit down and listen to it all the way through because it is weirdly one of those albums that I don't think works on a single-by-single single basis. I think if you're going to listen to American football, you almost need to sit down and ingest the nine songs and the 40 minutes that it takes. Just take it all in because it, it's one great 
piece of work more so than I think there are standalone great songs on this album. I'm still down on it because ultimately the math rock sound is never going to fully appeal to me when I look at just sort of the different webs of emo music. I'm going to gravitate a little bit more towards the pop punk. I'm going to gravitate a little bit more towards the screamo side, the more hardcore based 80 emo bands. Like, I'm just more into that sound. It's just what I like, but it's not a knock on the genre as a whole. There's just going oh, sure. to be a certain just level of, I guess, acceptance. Um, and it, it's just, th- this sound is never going to capture me as much as, say, you know, Embraced it. That being said, I, I came away feeling better about the album. I still, I chalk it up to essential listening because, again, of its historical significance way more so than, you know, oh, you've got to sit down, these songs are so good. I just think if you like the genre, at some point, you've it's American football. You've got to listen to it. Yeah, and usually, like, whenever, like, and this has kind of become a big thing over the last few years, and especially me now, in full adulthood, I look at these I look at these articles. I know that for a while this weekend, a bunch of a bunch of our friends were like posting like their own March Madness brackets, but for pop punk and for emo. And like I like looked at, at like these albums and some of these bands that people are like heralding. And then I'm like, no, nah, American football actually, to me in my mind at least, holds up, especially like much more so than as much as I love saves the day and especially stay as you are like that was that that was an album that i spent a lot of time with in high school and that definitely was for like that period of time was very much the kind of music i was listening to this was an album that i'm like okay i've tried to listen to stay as you are it's still a great album but i don't find like new things i find interesting about that album the same way as american football lp1 is and i think like that's kind of my uh, maybe 13 years, 14 years after listening to the first time, like that's the thing that keeps on pulling me back to this album in a way that a lot of the more traditional like pop punk emo or even stuff like I tried to listen to Coheed and Cambria a little while back. (laughs) How does that hold up? (laughs) I mean, it's ambitious. It's ambitious. Like (laughs) I'm really uh, going for it. No, no. Like, and, and there's definitely like a part of me that's just like, Oh, this is like awesome thing. Like trying to like tie all these things together, but it's just not for me anymore. But I don't know. Maybe it's something that like American football and the fact that even though I guess that they would be five or six years old and I am. So they're in their 40s. I'm approaching my mid 30s of a scary uh, speed that now I'm now facing mortality in a way case. (laughs) But uh, it's one of the things that like I totally understand. Like they say like, oh, you want to get a bunch of dads up there playing sad music. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? That's kind of the the perspective I have about these kind of things now. So I, I maybe that's another reason why I hold this record in such high regard. So, Mike, let me ask you, who needs to hear this album and why? So, I I don't like the idea of, like, a canon in music just because people can say canon, what canon means to one person is not necessarily means to other people. I think it's an interesting album for people who, definitely in their senior year of college, I think, like, that's for sure, and maybe even, like, senior year of high school. Like, it's it's a good album for people who are coping with finality. I'll put it that way. Like if you're someone that's like struggling with like a certain time and you're like not really having things to this, it's very relatable in that aspect. And then also for people who just like listening to what happens when you have people from more like traditional like emo pop punk things, post rock things like 
what happens when you get people from Captain Jazz and Jonah Arc together with someone who grew up playing polka music. <laughs> like, if that sounds interesting to you as well, American Football LP1 is worth listening to. Oh, Mike, that was that was well said. Before we go, what would you like to plug? Besides Adidas tracksuits and your sudden ascent into being a streetwear king, what else <laughs> would you like to plug? I mean, it... If my uh, like if the idea of someone collecting uh, Adidas uh, tracksuits and their own as their own way of coping their their like degeneration of their mental state, then yeah, like follow me on Twitter at Fujiheya. Case and I have other projects there, but just just find there it's Fujiheya with two eyes. F U G F U J I I H E Y A. I should know that better than that. It's okay. Yeah, if you if you liked what you heard and you thought, you know, these guys discussed an album I really liked, let me hear them talk about the second biggest wrestling company in Japan. <laughs> you can do that as well. That is an option for you. Now, if you're thinking that, luckily, again, there's hope for you because Mike and I co-host the Open the Voice Gate podcast on the Voices of Wrestling Podcasting Network, where we discuss Dragon Gate which is the second biggest professional wrestling company in Japan. We're doing all sorts of stuff now because we've got time on our hands, but that is available. Mike, thank you for joining me. This was oh, thank an you so absolute much. pleasure to do. And this has been Art School Albums, which you can follow on Instagram at Art School Albums. You can follow me on Twitter at uh, K- uh, 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 underscore K-Slow, C-A-S-E-L-O-W-E. Until next time, I thank you for listening to the Art School Albums Podcast. This has been American Football's LP1.